Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the Appearance Psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to how we look. I'm Nadia and I'm super excited because today we're going to share our special panel event from our conference, Appearance Matters 7, on big business and body image. Historically, academics, health professionals, feminists, activists and critics have viewed the beauty industry as an enemy of efforts to promote diversity in appearance, positive body image and gender equality. This panel discussion will explore whether this argument still holds today where there is increasing pressure for businesses to be socially responsible and where consumers have an amplified voice through social media. The panellists will also explore the opportunities and ethics of a collaboration between the beauty industry and policy makers, becoming allies in the positive body image and appearance diversity movement. The panel is moderated by fashion editor Karen Franklin, MBE, who will introduce each of our wonderful panellists in turn after a short clip of the film The Illusionist. We see the selling of the westernized image as the badge of modernity in India, in Singapore, in China, in Japan, where the notion of how you join globalized culture is the taking of a western body. There is one of those trends happening where we are trying to embody this westernized, modernized image because that's where power comes from. Power in society, power in the western world, power in your job, power with your own beauty. If you walk around the streets of Lebanon, I think you'd realize that most people look the same, specifically people from a certain social class that have the money to have this many surgeries. I can remember when I was a high school student that body image was just not a concern. Nobody in those days worried about whether they had a six-pack of abdominal muscles or faithfully went to the gym six days a week. It just was not an issue when I was a teenager. It's often seemed to me that a person who feels happy and secure isn't going to be a very good consumer because that person isn't going to be looking for products to shore up uh, the self-image or to feel better about oneself. My name's Karen Franklin. I've worked in the fashion industry for 35 years and spent quite a bit of that challenging narrow appearance ideals coming out of my world. 
maker of the film that we just saw, The Illusionists, is filmmaker, photographer, multimedia producer and speaker, Elena Rossini. Next, from London College of Fashion, a graduate, now founder of MDN Flow Cosmetics, a new hip-hop-inspired UK beauty brand, is Florence Apidopadopadu. From the organisation Changing Faces, founder and CEO is James Partridge, OBE. It's a charity advocating for people with visible difference. We also have former MP and UK Business Minister Jo Swinson. She also was former UK Minister for Women. She's created the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Body Image. And next, Megan Ramsey, partner at Brunswick, a global consulting group helping brands develop and shape their social mission, former global director of the Dove Self-Esteem Project. And finally, esteemed psychoanalyst, activist and writer Susie Orbach, consultant to the World Bank, the NHS, the British Government and Unilever. So I want to start with, I want to put a question on the table. Are beauty brands still the enemy of efforts to promote positive body image and diversity in appearance? And Susie, I'm going to ask you. Oh, well, I don't think it's so simple. I think it's, I got entangled with the corporates because government, despite Joe's and her predecessors, many, many efforts, uh, find it very hard to go up against what is huge corporate power. But I think what's really very interesting about corporate power and about profit-making these days is you used to make profit on the backs of workers. That was called surplus value. Now you make profit on the, on the basis of selling to consumers. So the whole of consuming brands are caught up with how to sell to us. So. Is there a space in the indices of what they're doing for us to actually promote positive body image in diversity? I think yes and no. Very briefly, when I go in and I realize that now this year it is eyebrows and that you can buy everything for eyebrows, products that I don't think the men here would know, how many products you can have for eyebrows, and that a few years ago it was eyelashes. I mean, we have now moved from the face and the legs to every single bit of surface. It doesn't look good for saying that it's positive body image. However, within that, there are people who work in the corporate sector who actually themselves are disturbed about what's happened in the world, who are trying to create something good, and in that sense, it's possible to open up something, which is what Megan did at Dove and was done before. But it's, it's not easy to sustain, particularly if the brand doesn't have consciousness right through every single person who's involved in it. Thank you. Um, Megan, I'm going to bring you in on that to tell us really a little bit about that culture. But also, you know, we do understand that beauty brands don't consciously position themselves as underminers of self-esteem. That's kind of a byproduct yeah, for sales. I mean, absolutely, Karen. I feel like the real enemy is probably this increasingly narrow ideal that is perpetuated not just by beauty brands, but by a system that is reinforced day after day after day by positively by consumer behaviour, actually. And I, I agree with Susie, we have a tendency to oversimplify things, to try and understand them, and, and I think there's great merit in that in some ways but it's an incredibly complex challenge that we're up against to try and address body image and low body confidence. I think there can be a tendency to think that 
business and in particular beauty business is inherently evil somehow and um, people haven't, not everyone obviously, but having their heads that people sit around a, a board table and plot about how we can make women feel awful about themselves and therefore buy more products so that the business grows. Actually, beauty is a big business and it's a big business because women are interested in it and I say women not to the exclusion of men, appearance is a big business for men as well. And actually, the guiding force of business decision-making tends to be money. And what makes money is an understanding, a deep, deep insight into your consumers, the way they think, the way they feel, and the way they crucially behave. And most businesses want to have repeat business, which means people buy their product again and again and again. And the way that often they achieve that repeat business is by helping women particularly feel good about the products that they're buying. And so I would argue that the majority of beauty brands particularly, and in that I don't only include skincare products or makeup, but also fashion and other industries that are across beauty. But I would argue that they would say they're driven by a desire to make women feel beautiful um, as much as as much as they are any other kind of consumer-oriented decision. I'll bring James in there. I've got a... I want to introduce a parallel here. I've been involved for many years in another kind of effort to change business thinking, and that's around disabled people. And for years and years, disabled people saw brands and businesses as enemies, and particularly they were frustrated by the physical perfection that seemed to be you know, pushed at us all the time. And in the last 10 years, particularly, there has been a sea change. More and more products, more and more companies are, are realizing that actually it's cool to show disabled people wearing their products or selling their, or whatever it is, or having them employed even. And one of the things that really, I think, persuaded business, apart from uh, legislation, which was important, but one of the things that really persuaded them was the knowledge that disabled people had something like 80 billion pounds of disposable income, they and their families, available. And that if they didn't try to tap that market, then mm, they're, they're missing out. So I think there's something here uh, in a parallel universe about changing business perception of what matters. And I think there is a movement, as you said, that some businesses are now getting it. I'd like to think that that's a, a movement in the right direction. But of course, there's a huge tide <laughs> that's moving in the other direction. I'd like to bring you in, Joe, here, just to ask what you might put that down to. You presided over the APPG and called lots of meetings with lots of corporations. I think there's no doubt that consumer power can be incredibly effective. And so one of the early things that I did when I was founding the campaign for body confidence that came out of a, a policy paper that I'd produced for the Liberal Democrats, which was probably one of the most read policy papers that we'd ever done. Certainly didn't usually get uh, transatlantic interest, but, um, but this did capture the imagination. And so we decided to turn it into more of a movement. And we got people to complain to the Advertising Standards Authority about adverts that were excessively retouched on the basis that they were misleading, which was the basis on which the ASA would take action. And all of a sudden, it became a big issue. Brands 
suddenly started to worry about it. And by the time, a couple of years later, the marketing director, I think, for Boots was giving evidence to the all-party group inquiry, you know, they said in 18 months, the way the public views this has changed significantly. So I think consumer power can have a big impact. But I think there is sometimes a slightly lazy assumption that brands get into that because a particular type of marketing campaign is successful and it works and it sells products, for all that we talk about, you know, great innovation in business, it can be, you know, risky from a personal career perspective for people to put, go out on a limb and say, we're going to do something totally different, kind of like in the way that Dove did, uh, and that we've seen some other brands in, in dar different ways, you know, Bare Minerals, um, uh, Boots Number 7, uh, others actually try and break the mould a bit. But that is a more difficult thing to do. But I think what we are basically saying is we want consumers to show that they want something different. But we do also want business to take a lead in this as well and not just follow public opinion in terms of the majority, but also see where that's going and how they could play a role in creating a better world where people feel good about themselves rather than this cycle of making people feel rubbish so that they buy more products. I'm going to come back to that a little later on, just that challenge really of creating something that f will fall successfully within expectations for quarterly profit return and maintenance of, of profit. These things take time. Florence, coming to you, you created a diverse brand, you looked at your consumer base, there was a gap in the market for you, and you now have a successful small range. Was this something that you felt you had a very limited window with which to work uh, in terms of finance and, and what you could create within the moment? So a little bit about my brand, um, I started MDM Flow in July 2013 um, once I graduated from a degree in cosmetic science from the London College of Fashion and during the four years whilst I was studying I got the opportunity to work for loads of different brands um, in the industry. I've worked on every department store in Oxford Circus and I felt that the brands that were available in the mass prestige and luxury portfolio didn't really represent me there wasn't a lot of um, diversity when it came to the colors the colors that were available weren't suitable to, for my skin tone and also a lot of the influences weren't relative to influences that i had so upon graduation i just decided to essentially create the brand of my dreams in terms of financing my brand initially I took out a loan from my university and I kind of, and I started um, formulating in my parents' shared. And <laughs> I just limited myself based on the resources that I had. And I think like my collection's really small. I only have um, 17 um, colors in my range. And I also like through social media, um, like it's been said before, like just having a conversation like with my consumers and the women who purchase my line about what they want and building that into my collection. And, but in terms of like promotion and like I've spoken to a lot, I've been featured in most of the main kind of magazines and I think press is really excited about what I'm doing. A lot of um, women who found out about my brand like through reading it through the press and discovering it have been really excited and that's how I like see my brand growing by word of mouth in that way. So even though I kind of have to make the most of what I've got, I don't really feel limited in terms of my resources. So internet much reviled in some ways for um, producing a proliferation of imagery that creates a kind of uh, unachievable body, but also offering solutions in terms of reaching uh, consumer base and being able to get genuine feedback, being able to broadcast your film, Alina, which took eight years to make for funding. Yes, 
Um, it was a really long journey. I initially approached TV stations and uh, I say that I pretty much wasted three years doing mm. pitches of the project and what I would hear time and time again was, we don't care about your experts, get rid of them, put yourself in the film receiving beauty treatments and we have a deal. And I thought it was ridiculous. Um, I really wanted to be invisible in the film because I wanted everyone to be able to identify. I ended up doing crowdfunding. Um, I had a modest but really ardent following on Twitter and Facebook, and those people really helped me uh, to just put the budget together for the film. And then I spent a year traveling the world and doing interviews in the US for countries in Europe, Lebanon, India, and Japan. And again, I wanted every single person in the audience to be able to identify whether you are a 50-year-old woman in India or a black teenage boy in the US. Um, I feel like the issues that are discussed in The Illusionist and stuff that we've talked about here at the conference, they are global issues. They affect absolutely everyone. Uh, women, men, and children. And um, it was a very difficult journey, it took eight years, but I would get messages almost on a daily basis on social media with people thanking me and saying that it was a really important topic and it's what spurred me to continue. And I'm so glad that I was able to finish the film and it's almost ready for general distribution. And I'm so happy to be reunited with Susie and with Joe who appear in the film. And can I ask you if it's possible to, to put it into a small um, little nutshell, what did you learn? Oh, so much. <laughs> um, it's a little bit difficult to put that in a nutshell, mm -hmm. but I think that the main topic of the film is that we receive the message over and over again that the way that we are naturally is not good enough and we need to use products to improve the way that we look. And that without you know, consuming, without spending, there's this like, sense of not being good enough, um, not being lovable. And uh, I found this like, across every single country that I've gone to. It was really incredible. Um, one of my favorite moments in the film, and I hope you're gonna have a chance to see that, um, it's about skin whitening products. So I did a split screen with the same brands. I'm not gonna say who they are, but same brands. Um, there's an ad from China on the left-hand side of the screen with super famous Chinese actress putting on skin whitening cream, like doing this, and her skin you know, gets lighter. And then on the other side of the screen, same brand, but from France, uh, you have a model who does the same gesture and her skin gets darker. So the message ultimately is, yeah, you need products to, you know, to be beautiful. I'm going to throw this to anyone who wants to jump in. Uh, what can the beauty industry do to promote positive body image? I just wanted to build on something that Joe was saying earlier, which is actually if you, if you have a point of view on body image, I think that's a really critical first step. And if you take a stance on that point of view and take action towards it, whether that is at the very basic level by representing a diverse range of people in your advertising to taking it up a notch and being transparent about the types of retouching and the level of retouching that might happen in the, in the advertising that you um, do, fundamentally having products that suit or appeal to a wide range of the population or a very specific but defined 
um, segment of that population being clear on who that is. I think it's a lot, it's just about communicating and understanding the ecosystem of the, the challenge and the problem and, and um, behaving responsibly as part of that. I think taking, uh, that would get you to sort of um, from negative one to zero. If you wanted to get to positive one, you're then going to have to do something else on top of that to start changing the landscape. And I think a really strong and powerful way of doing that is to articulate a positive point of view and bring your body of consumers with you on that journey towards that. So, Susie, you're going to respond, and also James after Susie. I suppose what's disturbed me once you've got to zero, if you do get to zero, is the fact that it, it doesn't matter how much diversity you have if you are still presenting women and now increasingly boys and men to, ca to camera in such a way that all they're doing is posing, looking out and, and not actually doing anything. I mean, what, what, what we're doing, what we see in those images is look at me, I'm so vulnerable, but I'm so tough at the same time. I'm so available, but you really can't get me. And if you look at young women, and even if you look at kids in the playground at six, they are already developing that way of relating to their own bodies. They are scrutinizing themselves as they go about the ordinary business of being in a playground, let alone doing a job as a surgeon or whatever any of us are doing. So for me, it, it isn't about just getting to zero. It is about if we're going to do anything to do with beauty advertising, which you know I have my problems with, but I work with that because it's an opening. It really has to be, from my perspective, it's really got to be, you've got to show people in their lives doing, having interesting things to do, and being engaged with others, not looking like they're on a catwalk. I know this is something that you've tried to do. I mean, we've all tried to do it. But it really needs to be a counter image of what it means to be a woman or what it means to be a man or what it means to be a boy and what it means to be a girl. Because as long as we have that internal view that we're critical, we are going to be prey to messing ourselves up even further. James. I, I just wanted to add that I think if you're asking about the beauty industry, it's a massive thing. And for me, one of the things that's missing so far in Britain, and certainly it is around the world, is any collective force of businesses getting together. I don't want to harp on too much about the experience in the disability world, but a very, very important organization now called Business Disability Forum brought together four or 500 employers, including blue chip, many of the big blue chips. And it was a business-led initiative to change the way in which disabled people were seen by business strategically. Now, I attended the Be Real launch, and it was all very exciting. <laughs> and there were some quite important companies, not terribly big, but they were there. And it seems to me that there needs to be some way in which the beauty industry is challenged to bring themselves together to create a code, not to have a charity saying you ought to do this, but to have business themselves saying, aha, we're starting to get this message. We are going to collectively adopt a code, a set of guidelines, and we're going to enforce those on our advertisers 
and so that we start to see a culture change. It will take something like that. I don't see government actually being able to do that. But I think it is down to the beauty industry itself to start looking at these impacts. And particularly, Susie, you're very, very right about the impact on young children, I think. Mm -hmm. But so that's where I would be going. Good. So I think it's a really, really good point you've made there, James, about business collaboration. Uh, because in, in taking that risky step, if businesses are acting together, then they can actually push the boat out further when they do it. It's not them doing it necessarily on their own and they, they share that risk uh, and actually present themselves as, as leaders together. I mean, I think there's, there's two issues here about what, what business and the beauty business can do. I think one issue that we've been discussing is the advertising, you know, how do you promote your products? And obviously there's a wide range of differences in the way that could be done through diversity, through, as Susie says, presenting people in a positive light of actually having lives rather than spending their whole life trying to look a particular way as if that in itself is an end objective. But I think there's a, there's a deeper question in some cases. I mean, I think if you're, you know, if you're advertising colorful eyeshadow and it's about you know, having fun with makeup, then actually there's definitely a body image positive way to advertise and sell that product. But I think there's certain categories of products where there probably isn't. And in fact, the problem is the product. So that would certainly be the case for fad diet aids, where there's no kind of medical backup, where actually it's just going to do damage. And for some of those skin lightening creams that, that you know, we see advertised, and obviously there's strict controls in the UK on certain uh, ingredients, but those aren't globally the case. And I think there is just that issue about if you are sending out a message that this is somehow a necessary product for people uh, to use, um, you know, there's, I suppose there's very specific circumstances where such creams might be prescribed for individuals and, and that's a different matter. But as a general cosmetic product, I think you kind of have to question that business model of whether that type of product is compatible with having a positive view about body image itself. I wonder whether the very nature of beauty imagery, um, Susie's kind of referenced the objectification of, of uh, women, uh, increasingly men in the promotion of big business and that one solution might be to be seen to be actually valuing achievements, valuing the, you know, the active body, the active spirit and how we might bring that in. Is that something that anyone feels they've seen successfully done? I have actually. I had the chance to sit on a panel um, at a conference in San Francisco about two years ago with Pam Grossman of Getty Images. Mm -hmm. So she's in charge of the Leaning Collection. And uh, they've been doing fantastic work, uh, really like pushing out alternative images of women and also of men. And you know, those are sold, they're available for big brands like to buy like stock images and to use in their own advertising. And so Pam, in her presentation, she would show images, for instance, like when you think, when you Google a working mother, like usually the image that comes up is a woman in a business suit holding a baby, kind of like screaming. <laughs> and uh, what she's been doing, um, they have been just creating like a lot of images that really normalize what it's like to be a working mother. So with like moms, you know, working from home with a child on their lap, and uh, for men as well, like just like normalize the idea of men taking care of their children. And they've been incredibly successful. So during a presentation, she would actually show 
the names of the brands that have adopted, that have been using those stock images, and they're like the biggest brands in the world. Flo, can I bring you in and ask whether that's something that has been on the table for you, to think about how you promote your products? Yeah, I definitely think um, brands like mine and other independent brands really try to put out the message of um, body confidence and also individuality, because I think sometimes as well um, the beauty industry can be quite historic in how it presents body image and kind of tell a single story. So I definitely think there are brands out there that are trying to um, promote positive body image and individuality. But I think sometimes we have the problem of being placed into the trend mm -hmm. category. And so it stops it from being something that's adopted by the wider industry because it's presented as, okay, um, here are brands presenting um, confidence, but it's only going to be here for a couple of months and, you know, in six months' time, women are going to want to feel crap about themselves again. <laughs> <laughs> Megan, and I think that's perfect to bring you in, actually, as a big brand cosmetic company as well. I just wanted to say that I share the same concern that Flo has just raised, and, and not just for the body image issue, but across all important social change agendas that are really in, in the works at the moment. We're sort of in this era of... of an awakening, I think, of business in what their role is in, in driving social change and wanting to be on the front foot of that and so on and so forth. And some are doing great work and some are, are struggling with it. But we, we are surely in danger of sort of what we call purpose washing, of just sort of everyone having a purpose and everyone having, you know, um, a big push towards something and then you know tomorrow they're going to need to have a push towards something else and I think really I, I do believe business has a role to play here and and should um, often be purpose driven but maintaining a commitment over the long term to that purpose will be fundamental to actually drive genuine social change. Excellent point and I want to just come back to you and say how can we stop big, big business co-opting issues of gender inequality or body image anxiety for the purpose of a marketing novelty? I think it's a really good question and I think that it's, it's multifaceted. One of the premises I think that underlies that is that, um, that business is only doing it for its own benefit and of course I think um, fundamental to any activity for business typically, is a business case, an argument that makes taking an action make sense for a business. And business exists to make money. And I believe that business can deliver social value alongside, hand in hand, with financial value. And when the best businesses wrap their heads around this and do this well, that is certainly um, the outcome. To answer your question around co-opting particular issues, I think fundamental to social change is actually raising awareness of an issue and engaging the population in a conversation and a debate around it. And I think business is a really powerful force for elevating the debate within society or a conversation or a point of view. And whether you agree with that point of view or not actually makes it, it an interesting thing to talk about and engage more and more people. So I don't believe that should be considered a problem. I want to bring James in first and then Joe. Um, I was just going to take us to a slightly relevant parallel again. Body Shop was a very interesting company that really did decide to take a, take a new line in promoting, I don't think it's on there, no, 
Um, but it took a new line in trying to promote product products, and so did Dove. And I think there are some very good examples of how it's not a co-opting of the agenda, it's a taking something seriously and pushing mm -hmm. hard and not just giving up after the first little campaign, but sustaining it. So, you know, the self-esteem project is still running. I, I'm sorry, I'm not, a prom I'm not employed by Dove, actually, but, <laughs> but it is an important point that you don't just do it once and, keep and, and, and drop it after a year. You've got to sustain it if you're going to be seen as, as credible. Thanks. Um, I was just going to say, I think there's a really, in my mind, a really interesting conflict between two ideas. I mean, one is that if business is co-opting uh, an issue and giving it prominence, there's a bit of me that just cheers, frankly, even if they're doing it slightly cynically, because, you know, that is still useful and powerful. At the same time, I think if there's a hypocrisy, then it kind of needs to be called out. But conflicting with that is that you can't expect perfection, and certainly not perfection immediately. I mean, in the real world, if you're going to get change, businesses are no more perfect than people. And, you know, say, I certainly know I'm not perfect. So I don't see why we should expect businesses to be perfect. It's much more important that they have an authentic and genuine commitment, uh, that, that they are on a journey, and they can keep showing progress on that journey. So I, I think a good example would be, I loved the Dove self-esteem project, but there was a bit of me that just thought when the ASA were banning adverts of a glamour model bent over an oven in a thong with uh, you know, various captions about whether you could keep control or you would lose control for, for links, uh, and it was you know, part of the same stable, and I'm sure Megan probably had to um, feel oodles of questions of this over time, then it just, it felt, it felt a bit conflicting. It just felt it didn't really have coherence. But as I say, it is a journey, and Unilever has now announced really positively that they are going to change the way that they portray women in advertising. Lynx is going down a very different uh, route. So, so I think that, perhaps that's an example of uh, that, that we should recognise and appreciate and encourage good progress and steps in the direction. Yes, we should ask the tough questions where there doesn't seem to be coherence, but we should also give business space to actually make that journey and not get totally scared off when they are trying to start doing the right thing because they're not doing everything perfectly right at the beginning. Uh, I think that's a really important point. And Joe, just to acknowledge, um, rather than talk about the work that you and Lynn Featherstone did uh, in government to raise the profile of this issue, I think so. And uh, I think a case in point towards diversity in front of and behind the lens, because these were sort of, uh, at uh, one point, kind of pushed to the side as women's issues, and you brought them to the fore on behalf of men and women. I, I think, can we go, perhaps, to a point where we're empowering ourselves as consumers? What we can all, as individuals, do, how we can support each other, how we can... Um, empower ourselves and how we can interact with brands, with corporations to create this important exchange of information. Does anybody want to make a start with that one? James, you give me a little well, nod. I, I think it's we are in a, a social media world and I think the calling out of companies is increasingly something that's going to happen and companies are taking notice and I think that's an incredibly important additional power that consumers have now. And I, I'm imagining that that could become a real force for good. But of course, you know, companies will, will react in their own, their own way. I, I, I think consumer power is, is something we've got to absolutely hope for. 
Fleur, you look ready to... <laughs> Um, I think in addition to that, people need to be relentless with communicating with brands mm -hmm. that are doing the wrong thing because I think sometimes what can happen is that we get frustrated and we just decide, I'm never going to purchase from that brand again and the com conversation stops at that point. But I think being relentless in speaking to brands via social media, going onto their websites and writing in the contact forms and telling them what they're doing wrong constantly puts them under the pressure to be accountable for um, what they're putting out. And how well do you respond to that two-way criticism? Oh, I love it. So, well, on my, my social media is a conversation, and I'm, I ask questions, and I ask my customers what colours they, do they want, what colours are working, what colours aren't working, and I encourage it. And I think a lot of independent brands do it and have to do it because that's the way that we grow. And I think um, as brands like mine grow and hopefully become like big main stage brands in the industry, other bigger brands will kind of realise that this is also a path of growth. You know, I think that's so optimistic, but I think it's because you're a small brand. Because I've had to tangle with big brands who actually have got very high levels of consciousness and do the wrong thing, and when told by their advisors, don't correct it. So I don't, I, I think it's absolutely because of where you're situated that you're engaged, because most big brands don't answer their own social media. They have agencies who do it, and the agencies don't have the level of consciousness. And they're not invested in the same way. They're, they're, they're just an agency. So I think it's, it, when a brand, what, what I thought was so absolutely fantastic about Dove initially was that it actually was Dove World. There were several thousand people involved. They all went through consciousness raising. They all had to think about their mothers, their sisters, their aunties their children, you know, they actually had to think about, do I want my mother, sister, auntie to be experiencing the world in the way in which they are experiencing? What can I do to make a difference? And that's a very different thing than the kind of superficial way in which this stuff is being taken up now. And out of that came programs for schools, for teachers, for mentors, for, there's, all the stuff that actually is behind the line that I think is the most interesting about it, because most brands can do what's in front of the line. But what I thought was really interesting was grabbing that. But I don't think it's easy to hold on to that, because if you're successful, you get moved from the brand, or you've got nowhere to go, and by three generations down, none of the people know why that brand was doing what it was doing. So you then have a whole nightmare of trying to raise consciousness again about what it is as opposed to the superficial. So I, I think when we're actually talking business ethics and transformation, ethics needs to be absolutely front and center in the activity. And it does clash with the purposes of business. And that, is, that contradiction has to be held by everybody from the chief executive down to whoever's in the mailroom. Um, and I think that is part of the problem, is that the ethics and the dilemmas aren't shared. They're, they're, one person carries this piece and another person carries that. So it doesn't actually allow for the creative tension between those two things and for the people to have ownership and take it forward in the way that we want to have so that we don't see a situation in which six-year-olds are transacting over bodies. That is not okay. We have an absolute public health emergency now that kids are feeling this messed up about their bodies. 
Susie, you are a tireless activist, and um, you know we know how just how much work you've done, and you are obviously speaking from experience. So this code of ethical behaviour aligning um, with the kind of front of house activity mm. does feel like an important focus mm. that you've named. How then can we begin to push? for that, is there, do you have any insights as to how that can be achieved? Well, I think people that probably like in this room should be on proper boards, ex should be on, should be non-execs on boards. And, you know, it's not good enough to just to be arguing for women. You need to argue for activists and people who really are thinking about this stuff mm. and directing, having serious input into the ethics of, of um, companies. Um, I also think you need activists. And I think you, that they don't need to be on the board, but they need to be there pushing the boards. And um, you need to have people inside, lying across the profession, which is some of what Joe and Lynn try to do inside of the committees that we are all part of. Uh, it's not a one answer. It's, mm. it, and we need to be in the teacher training colleges so that the teachers are, are thinking about a, their own issues and not passing on to kids, but also the ethics of what is business. Now, now teachers have to teach business, for goodness sake. Mm. So how about teaching the ethics of business? There's so many... Mm. I could go on forever. I'm sure oh. we all could. I, I, can <laughs> okay. I just add, yeah. I think you're absolutely right that it is multidimensional and it's global. And it seems to me that this is such an important issue that the notion of an international summit... I mean, I don't think climate change actually is any more important really than this stuff. I think there is a body image crisis that's brewing around the planet and I think there needs to be a really big collective Join endangered effort. bodies. We have well, a global organization. Okay, I We're will. very poor. I will, but I mean, that is the sort of, that is the sort of concept that putting it onto the agenda of political uh, manifestos and conferences, that's the way it's got to happen in order for business actually to start to say, hey, wait a second, this is important. We need to start thinking about it, preparing our next breed of people and products and so on. So I think it's quite an important, you know, kind of uh, meta-level uh, conversation we need to have as well as in the schools and, and right yeah. down into the advertising agencies. Megan. Just building on that, and then I want to come back to the point on consumer feedback. So um, what one, just a shout out to WAGS, because I think that is one example of, mm -hmm. the World Association of Girl Guides and Girl Scouts is one example of such a movement where Good. it's an organisation of 10 million young women around the world who are really advocating for this change. And we were at the UN Commission on the Status of Women mm -hmm. last year, and I again, I believe this year, really advocating for governments to take this seriously, mapping it to the Sustainable Development Goals body image as an issue that fundamentally undermines girl development. And particularly when girl development is such a hot topic and governments are beginning to need to report on their progress towards this, providing them with positive solutions <laughs> to try and start figuring it out because it is a really complex problem and governments don't know what to do either. No. Um, and so we need to collectively, I think, also help to help them navigate that piece alongside the help that we support to business. But I, one thing I wanted to say, because I would hate that people wouldn't give businesses feedback, no, I think <laughs> um, is that I think both of what you're saying is right, because uh, agencies do 
coordinate the feedback mechanisms by and large for big brands. But it would be a bit like if you had a genuine concern about the strategy of, let's say, a major supermarket, you wouldn't go to the person at the till, would you? You would try and find the right person in the organisation to speak to. But I, I would be willing to bet that if you write your feedback to the people within the right people within the organisations, then you will get a response and you will get something meaningful and open up a dialogue and they do want to hear from you. They are interested in consumer information and opinion. My last plea on that front is please don't just give feedback to the brands that are really trying to do something about it. Mm. Please give feedback to the brands that aren't doing anything about it as well. Elena. Yeah, um, I have so many positive examples of real change that happened within 24 hours because people called out brands online. I feel like the number one fear of brands is to be publicly shamed and to have their name you know, tarnished by something. And um, I remember that a few years ago, Sainsbury used to stock a card that said, you look thin. Uh, you know, in one of the general greeting areas. And somebody, I think from Shape Your Culture... It was from Endangered Bodies, yeah. Exactly, yes. Somebody took a picture and tweeted to Sainsbury, this is not acceptable, you know, please do something about it. And the same day after... Yeah, we got it removed, like 24 hours. Tesco, same thing. Somebody went to Tesco and noticed that there was a girl aisle and a boy aisle for toys took a picture, they said, this is really you know, unacceptable, we shouldn't really be polarizing genders when it comes to toys, and uh, they responded also the same day. And in some instances, like you would think, oh, but you probably need a lot of people tweeting. Not really, like in some instances, there were only two retweets, and the brand responded the same day and did something. It's so interesting, right, because I hear you say that, and I was part of those campaigns, or people I work with really closely. And I know we got the cosmetic surgery apps removed because they were being sold to six-year-olds. Mm -hmm. But there's another 200 cosmetic surgery apps there, right? So you're right about big brands. I think it's, it is actually possible, but it's not. And I think the ASA campaigns were fantastic, mm -hmm. very successful. I'm not sure what we do about, this is the, opposite story. Well, what do we do about the people who are just creating these terrible programs for children? My very short um, piece to say is that um, one trend that we're noticing in beauty business at this, at this point in time is that the competitive threats for big businesses and big, big beauty brands are not coming from other big beauty brands anymore. They're coming from um, lots of small independent beauty businesses and many of them local and many of them entirely disengaged from this conversation. And so how we tackle that as a community I think will be a very interesting challenge moving forward. Thank you to an amazing panel. I just want to say, before we give them a tumultuous applause, let's not forget the important point that Susie made around art, creativity, design. I'm going to add into that cool factor. Yeah. Uh, something that makes it important to want to get on board in combination with the amazing information that we've learned today through some of the incredible studies that have been presented, actually getting that information out there and giving it real currency. 
So I'd like you to join with me to give our experts a round of applause. Thank you very much. A huge thank you to our panellists, Susie Allback, Megan Ramsey, James Partridge, Joyce Winston, Florence Adipoju and Eleanor Rossini. And a big thank to Karen Franklin for moderating. You can find out more about each of the panellists via the links in the bio. Remember, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to rate us on iTunes. It really does make a difference. Thank you to our conference sponsors, the Healing Foundation, the University of the West of England and the Dove Self-Esteem Project. Thanks also goes to David Inskow for our theme music.